Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome to another exciting edition of Talks Talk. I am Matt Zuckerman, medical toxicologist at the University of Massachusetts. And on this episode, I wanted to talk about something that's very near and dear to the heart of many toxicologists. And it actually all started after a recent conversation on our Twitter feed at Talks Talk, where a Twitterer by the name of Geek in the ER, at Geek in the ER, a rural uh, Canadian doc, had tweeted a case of three men in a semi-rural area of Canada who ate a meal of moose and mushrooms that was cooked in oil and then all developed symptoms of cholinergic poisoning. So vomiting and diarrhea and sort of asked for some input and some advice. And toxicologists get very excited whenever they hear about anyone eating mushrooms because there are so many different kinds of mushrooms and they can cause so many different types of toxicity. And there's some subtleties in terms of the timing and the nature of the symptoms and how you treat them and how you diagnose them. And I think that most people, ultra laymen, just think that you can just eat mushrooms, but they know some of them are bad. Most people in medicine know that there are particular types of mushrooms that can cause liver failure, but really to talk about how a toxicologist approaches mushroom poisoning is a, is a great opportunity. And we've gotten some requests in the past to try and do a show on mushroom poisoning, and so this is a great opportunity to do that. So for this episode, we're going to really try and do a broad overview of how a medical toxicologist approaches mushroom poisoning and really break it down into broad categories. There's a lot of different common names and Latin names and things that we're going to try and minimize anything that kind of confuses the issue. There's a lot of great references out there, but hopefully you'll enjoy this. I sat down with the Brain Trust at the University of Massachusetts Division of Toxicology really to try and get a broad overview of mushroom poisoning. Hello, my name is Peter Chai. I am the junior tox fellow here. And I am Lynn Ferruja. I am one of the second-year tox fellows here at UMass. My name is Viral Patel. I'm a second-year EM resident at UMass. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Boyle. I'm one of the second-year tox fellows here. I'm Stephanie Carrero, another one of the second-year tox fellows here. And I'm Kavita Babu, one of the faculty members here at UMass. And in case you can't see this, but you can tell that uh, Viral is the is the EM resident because he's the only one of us in scrubs. Um in the room. The rest of us, you'll just have to imagine what we're wearing. And uh, also to set the scene, we should mention that uh, Peter Chai is wearing a mushroom hat, sort of the um, red and white type mushroom that you, uh, that you that you think of when you think of colorful mushrooms. Leave it to a toxicologist to dress for the occasion. So let's start with that one. <laughs> if you had to identify the mushroom hat that he is wearing, which one? Actually, which would yeah. you say it was? Toad. Heck yeah. yeah. I have a veil. So he has a veil. 
And actually, I'm going to stop for a moment uh, just to point out that this is also one of the reasons why mushrooms are so difficult. Because when you start talking about mushrooms, you start talking about veils and caps and rings and gills. And you feel like you're talking about fashion or fishing or something, but it's really, it's unlike anything else. I mean, anyone who's ever gotten frustrated when a patient says, I take a blue pill, can understand the difficulty when you're describing how these mushrooms look, which is one of the reasons why we generally try to focus on pictures and also one of the reasons why we generally try to advise against identifying mushrooms based solely on on how they look. And we'll try and put some some pictures of common mushrooms up on our website at TalkStalk. But the main reason why we generally try to stay away from identifying mushrooms is that a trained mycologist actually uses spore prints and is aware of where the mushroom is found and how it looks at various points in its life cycle, whereas most of us are actually, we're not actually great at identifying mushrooms. We're much better at identifying pictures of mushrooms because there's usually that one picture of Amanita that we've all seen and that one picture of Psilocybe mushrooms that we've all seen. And so I don't want to dive into too much about identifying mushrooms based on how they look, but we'll put some pretty pictures of mushrooms up on the website just to give you a visual sense for how they look. After all, most of us are visual learners, but these are by no means meant to be used for mushroom identification. Much like a mushroom hat is cute, but is also not useful for mushroom identification. I believe we're looking at Amanita muscaria. Okay, yep, Amanita muscaria. Cool, all right. So, Amanita muscaria. And you hear, this is the annoying thing about mushrooms. You're like, Amanita! It's an Amanita, so it must be the really bad one. But this is Amanita muscaria. I think we all like Amanita muscaria because it's the pretty mushroom and the mushroom that you think about when you see children's books or video games with a red mushroom and tan or white spots on it. What's most important about it is it's in the group containing muscimol or ibotenic acid. Yeah, the ibotenic acid. Cool. Muscimol. But what does the muscimol do? So the muscimol is structurally similar to GABA. Okay, yeah. So structurally similar to GABA, so can make some people sleepy. Make some, some people sleepy. And the ibotenic acid is structurally similar to glutamic acid. So intoxication can produce a combination picture of agitation and or CNS depression. So if someone were to take a bite of Peter's hat, they might either fall asleep or be agitated. Right. So there it is. You just heard it. The word is muscimol. That's the poison. And usually we like to use our Latin roots and knowledge of other things to say muscimol sounds like muscarin must have muscarinic poisoning or anti-muscarinic poisoning. I'm sure there's some sort of relationship there. And it throws you because muscimol is not anti-muscarinic and it's not pro-muscarinic. It's completely different. Uh, just to throw you off. There is, and some of you are thinking, but I know there is a mushroom that does cause uh, muscarinic poisoning. And you're right, we're going to get there, we're going to get there, but just be aware, just remember that um, with this particular type of mushroom with the Amanita muscaria, it is not muscarinic poisoning. It is in fact poisoning with ibotenic acid or muscimol with the uh, ibotenic acid looking like glutamic acid and resulting in excitation. And the muscimol, though it has the musk word in it, actually acting like GABA and making you sleepy. Well, the other interesting thing about the Amanita muscaria is that it's called fly agar. It Historically, it was called this because when flies landed on the Amanita muscaria, they would die. That's nice. And, and it's got muscaria in the word, so you would assume that it would have muscarinic properties. But just remember that uh, these mushrooms 
that these mushrooms do not have uh, muscarinic properties, as opposed to the anosibi and clytosibi mushrooms. So those contain a muscarinic compound, so you can get the kind of the traditional muscarinic symptoms. You get you can get bronchorrhea and lacrimation and diaphoresis. Although you really need a large amount of mushroom to really cause symptoms, so it's more you would expect it from somebody who ate a whole meal of mushrooms rather than eating a single cap. Exactly, those contain muscarin, which looks like acetylcholine but can't be broken down by the um, acetylcholinesterase, and so it causes a cholinergic toxic type picture, exactly like you talked about. But it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier and doesn't hit the nicotinic receptors. You just get the fun sludgy, gooey stuff. So uh, if somebody came in after eating one of these mushrooms, how would you treat them? So you can use atropine as needed, kind of similar to what you would do with people who are cholinergic. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So they could look like an organophosphate poisoning or something, but they'll be sludgy. But they won't have the nicotinic effects of the organophosphate poisoning, so they shouldn't have the seizures and the weakness and stuff. So there you go. These are mushrooms that do not have muscaria in the name, but they do have muscarinic side effects. And they are anosibi and clotosibi. Anosibi and clotosibi. And with those mushrooms, they have muscarin, so you are in trouble. So that's how I remember it. It's silly, but muscimol is not muscarinic, but muscarin, you're in trouble. And it's just that in. Maybe it'll help you send your helpful mushroom mnemonics to our TalksTalk Twitter feed at TalksTalk. Cool, all right. Would anyone give these people two fan? No. Yeah, exactly. There's no... There's no aging process. There's no irreversible binding. Yeah, it's not centrally active. You're not going to get the nicotinic effects. Perfect. So no two fan, but you'd give them atropine because they'd be all sludgy. All right. My favorite mushroom, actually, is the coprinus mushroom. Anyone know why I like the coprinus mushroom? Would it have to do with its reaction with alcohol? Yes. That means you don't like well, alcohol? Well, does it react with alcohol? Well, it does not. It gives a similar, it gives a disulfiram-like effect. So it interacts with aldehyde-dehydrogenase, causing the disulfiram-like effect. So this is the classic one where people, um, well, the story is actually, it helps to remember what it does, but it's factually incorrect. So what's the classic story with this mushroom? The classic story is that they would drink alcohol and mushroom together in one meal and then develop a disulfiram reaction, but that's not actually true. Right, absolutely right. Because the symptoms kick in like an hour, hours after you eat it. So in theory, if you have a glass of wine with your meal, you're going to metabolize that before the mushroom kicks in. But then when you have your nightcap, you'll vomit. Although, depending on how many glasses of wine you have with the mushroom, I don't know, you could still be drunk. And I don't know, everyone everyone has silly mnemonics throughout toxicology, and mine for this is co-prine, no co-wine. Um, <laughs> but, but and then I always remember that you can't drink with that one. And this one isn't, isn't necessarily dangerous, except if, you, if you've seen a really bad disulfiram-like reaction, they can get, um, you know, pretty tachycardic and vomiting like crazy and a lot of autonomic symptoms, and so they can, they can get pretty sick if there's a lot of alcohol on board. I think the other thing to remember is the disulfiram reaction can um, continue for up to 72 hours after ingestion of mushrooms, so the patient may not necessarily link those two events in time if you don't probe a little bit. And I think that one of the themes that comes up a lot when you're talking about mushroom exposures is that we're not often able to identify what mushroom the patient was exposed to, but the coprinus, the inky caps, tend to be a little bit more distinct than some of our other mushroom families. 
Yes, because they undergo autolysis or autodigestion, so they kind of get this weird sort of inky cap thing. But that's actually a good point, and let's let's jump off the rails for a moment. So the other frustrating thing about mushrooms is everyone thinks that they can walk into like an ED or call the toxicologist and tell you what the mushroom looked like, and then you tell them exactly what will happen to the patient. That's a tendency throughout toxicology is like you have to know um, exactly what something looked like. I took four blue pills or the snake looked like this, and then you as the toxicologist will identify it. And the reality is, I don't know about you, but I'm not a mycologist, especially with out-of-focus cell phone pictures or descriptions. There's a big tendency to want to diagnose what's going to go on by diagnosing the description. Or worse, they could also bring in the mushroom. The problem is multiple mushrooms can grow together, right? And so right next to each other, there might be two very similar looking mushrooms that have very different effects. And actually, we can talk about there's a classic lookalike that causes a lot of problems later. But so identifying it is hard. And then reality, mycologists uh, are able to identify mushrooms at multiple phases of their life cycle. And they use spore prints where they sort of allow the spores to drop and see the pattern of droppings and other chemical tests to identify mushrooms that we just don't usually have bedside. So even though it's a fun academic game to try to identify the mushrooms, it's not always something I... Has anyone here been like asked about mushrooms or asked to diagnose Sure. Of course. I think it's probably more the symptomology that we're interested in. So, you know, are they having nausea or vomiting? You know, what did they come in with rather than what, trying to identify the type of mushroom? Because I think we think about them more by symptoms and management and treatment rather than, you know, trying to pin down the exact genus and species of mushroom that they took. It's just as you said, Matt, when they come with a bag of mushrooms, they're bringing the mushrooms that they did not ingest. So you really don't know which ones actually or they're partially eaten or they're cooked or they've been chewed by the dog and so it's really really hard and then uh, every year you'll actually classically see people who live in one country and grew up mushroom foraging say in europe where it's really really common and then they move out of their geographic area and sadly you get mushrooms look different and so they'll eat a mushroom that they grew up that they think they grew up with that's very safe and tasty and sadly it looks like amanita or something else and causes a lot of bad effects and so Mushrooms are uber local and change throughout their life cycle, and so are hard to hard to identify. So treat the treat the patient, not the um, description of the poison. And we'll talk a little bit more about how we generally manage mushroom poisonings. But there, I don't like getting those calls. All right, but so when I talked about lookalikes, did anyone know which mushrooms I might have been talking about? I'm guessing you're talking about the morels and the false morels. Yeah. Cool. Okay. All right. So why? So yes. So why would anyone want to eat like a morel? They're tasty. And you use them. Has anyone ever eaten like a morel? I think so. And how did you prepare it? It was prepared for me. It was prepared for me. Yeah. In a risotto. In a risotto. Delicious. Mushroom risotto. That does sound good. But you said that you might have eaten um, a false morel. Did you or did you not? Because you might know. I don't think I knew. I think you would know. Now that I read about them, I worry that I may have. But I'm pretty sure I did. (laughs) Okay. So what's never had a seizure? You never had a seizure. Exactly right. The false morels. Uh, what, what's the fancy Latin confusing term for false morale? Gyromitra esculenta. Yes, gyromitra which sounds kind of Spanish to me. And why, why gyromitra? Because of the appearance. It looks like the gyri of the brain. It looks like a brain, which is why it's easy to think of the clinical oh. effects of the brain mushroom affects the brain and causes seizures. seizures. Right, exactly. All right. Wait, why does it cause seizures? metabolite monomethylhydrazine. 
Yes, absolutely. It's gyrometrin. It's right. Gyrometrin metabolizes into monomethylhydrazine. It's hydrolyzed in the gastric context. Right. It uses a pyridoxy, and so you lose all your pyridoxine-mediated synthesis products, one of which is GABA. So you lose GABA, so you can seize. So it's almost like you took a bunch of INH in a mushroom. Yeah, or jet fuel, other hydrazine exposures. So you've got a hydrazine exposure, but it's from a mushroom. So, and this is why mushrooms are really, really cool. It can look like, you know, jet fuel or INH exposure, and it's something that grows in the forest. It if looks like cooked, something that a lot of people really enjoy eating. What if you cooked a forest false morel in jet fuel? <laughs> <laughs> then yeah. you have a really bad seizure. <laughs> double, double we'll the effects. Double. <laughs> if you win a Darwin Award. I think that's what happens. There's going to be a lot of paradox. Right. Right. Exactly. And so you mentioned that. So the classic story is it interferes with the synthesis of GABA. And so without GABA, you end up seizing. And so how do we how do we normally treat that? Normally, if somebody comes in seizing. First line. Benzos, benzos, benzos. The only thing that benzos don't treat is benzo overdose. But what, what do we actually have to treat this one with? Paradoxy. Why? Because if you don't have the GABA there, you... You can give all the benzodiazepine you want, and you can't... Stimulating the GABA receptor without GABA present, it's not going to be effective. So you need to be able to generate GABA first. Yeah, exactly. Not effective. So, yeah, this is when you start giving the B6. Also, same treatment for uh, other hydrazine exposure and seizures, and INH-induced seizures. And I think just to go back, in terms of the mechanism by which you decrease your GABA production, you have sort of a triple threat with any of these monomethyl hydrazine-like structures, the hydrazines or the hydrazones, where you end up with inhibition of glutamic acid decarboxylase. You inhibit pyridoxal 5-phosphatase, which creates the active form of pyridoxine. And then we think that these agents actually increase the excretion of pyridoxine as well. So as Matt was saying, just the treatment with benzos alone isn't going to overcome the um, tendency to to seize, and so you can use benzos, you can use BARD synergistically with whatever amount of pyridoxine you have available to you, because in a lot of medical settings, they may not have enough pyridoxine to treat these exposures as monotherapy. And it's, it's, it's almost as if there's a twisted mind out there creating these things that look exactly like very delicious things and cause lots of toxic effects. Um, okay. All right. And seizures. So that's the Daramiche. All right. Okay. So you're still with me. You're doing really well. This is really good. This can be sometimes dense stuff. But uh, just to provide a little bit of a roadmap, we started off talking about the Amanita muscaria, which are not muscarinic. And then we rolled into a second group, the Inosibi and Clytosibi mushrooms, which are muscarinic. And then we talked about the coprinus mushrooms with their disulfram-like effects. And now we have talked about the false morels or the gyrometra mushrooms with their brain and seizure effects. So this would be a good point if you've been listening to this straight through, you know, take a break, have a mushroom lunch, uh, just uh, saute them in a little bit of butter, put them on some risotto, Maybe just have the healthy way and, and put them on a salad, which is, you know, really good for you. Take a mental break. And assuming that that break has occurred, we are now going to jump back into more delicious but deadly mushrooms. 
Well, I think if we're going to talk about favorite mushroom species, you have to throw a shout out to our former fellow who's now at UConn, Dr. Mark Nevin, in terms of his favorite mushroom that we have all fondly spent time thinking about. And uh, that would be the Quartinarius mushroom. Right. So what happens with Quartinarius? So Quartinarius is interesting because it's one of the few mushrooms that can cause renal failure. The toxin that um, causes the renal failure is arelanine. And if you ever run into Dr. Nevin, you will have to ask him how he remembers that arelanine is the toxin in Quartinarius and causes renal failure, because it is quite the story. So what Kitty is coyly referring to is a mnemonic device for remembering the toxicity from the Quartinarius mushroom, which was essentially created by UMass alum, currently of Hartford Hospital, Mark Nevin. And this is the danger of ever talking in front of an iPhone that can record, is that Dr. Nevin's mnemonic has been uh, recorded, and uh, we will play it for you here now so that you can understand sort of the psychotic memory aids we use to remember the details of these mushrooms. Mark, uh, if you're listening to this, I just want to say I'm sorry, but I had to. Cortinarius, the mushroom has the toxin orelanine that causes renal toxicity because Cortinarius rhymes with Sagittarius, which looks like a horse, and the horse whisperer author got poisoned by Cortinarius, and another author called Orwell um, sounds like orelanine, which is the toxin. So if that made any sense to you at all, then you should just turn this off because you already know everything about mushrooms. But um, we are going to now talk about the toxicity of the Quartinarius mushroom, and then we'll try and explain what the wanderings of Dr. Nevin's mind had created there. It's kind of like deciphering the song American Pie. Although, as mnemonics go, I'm not sure how successful it was in terms of increasing retention amongst the UMass crew. Okay. Is there a funny mnemonic, or is it just a story? It has to do with a Horse and George Orwell. Authors. And Quartinarius sounding like Sagittarius. Mm-hmm. And we can't remember and the, the rest of it. the horse whisperer was poisoned. Exactly, yes. Mm-hmm. Here, actually, I have it. Nicola, Nicholas, I don't know where it is. Nicholas Evans. Nicholas, yes. Evans. Nicholas Evans, Evans ate this mushroom. Nicholas Sparks. Evans? No, Evans. That is really? Evans. Yeah. No, it's Nicholas Evans. Nicholas <laughs> Sparks wrote the notebook. Do you want... So, do you want so the thing about it is I was really excited when I heard that... Oh, well, this is terrible. But I was like, oh, yes, because I hate the notebook. And that guy got sick, but it's not Nicholas Sparks. <laughs> it's Nicholas Evans who wrote The Horse Whisperer, which is all about talking to animals and is very kind. So, yeah. So, anyway, so Cornelius, and so what happens is you eat this mushroom, and then you're fine. You say, that was a delicious mushroom meal. I think that that was one of the best mushroom meals you've ever made, dear. And then, many hours to a few days later, what happens? All of a sudden, you're not feeling so great because your kidneys are shutting down. Yes, and you sort of get like a prodromal symptom too. Like, so like if, if you ever eat a mushroom and then two days later you start to get like a little bit achy or ill, you should be afraid. You're like, that wasn't a great idea. Right. Or maybe you got the cold um, or Ebola. But um, essentially... It's not so, Ebola. It's not Ebola. It's not Ebola. You cannot get Ebola by eating a mushroom. Or you say that. Or can you? <laughs> anyway, not to get off track. So the mushroom seed, and then you get renal failure, right? So you get darkened, decreased urine, and then you get no urine output, and then, yeah, so how do we treat this? Hemodialysis and um, eventually sometimes a kidney transplant. 
Right, and actually Evans uh, sadly needed to get a kidney transplant. I think there were probably like four people in that party who ate the mushrooms and developed toxicity from it, but he was the only one that went on to do transplant. Yeah, I think his wife got a transplant eventually also. Oh. And the one person that was okay was the child because they didn't like the way it children tasted, never tasted so they, it, yeah. they didn't eat as much and there was a fourth the fourth person ate very little and never needed uh never got very sick but three people were on dialysis just like a murder mystery that's the other thing i guess if you eat at somebody's house and then a few days later everyone gets sick it might be mushrooms or they might be trying to kill you or is that he's written a really interesting first person account of, of this whole experience from the foraging all the way up to transplant which is definitely worth reading does he still go mushroom foraging i don't know <laughs> no, he only eats amanitas. Yeah. Whenever I hear somebody going mushroom poisoning, I feel like I'm watching a scary movie where somebody's about to go in the basement. I'm like, don't go in the basement! Don't do it! Okay. Alright. So, yes, yeah, so that's a great one. So, that's renal failure primarily via what? Arelanine. Arelanine. So, just to reiterate, uh, Dr. Nevin's mnemonic, Cortinarius rhymes with Sagittarius, which has a symbol of a horse. And the author of The Horse Whisperer, Nicholas Evans, got sick and renal failure from eating the mushroom. And the poison is arelanine because Orwell is also an author. Okay, so you're thinking, I got that down. That quaternarius mushroom is the one that causes renal failure. But there is one other group of mushrooms that causes renal failure and actually violates the one law that we have about eating mushrooms and whether or not it's dangerous or not dangerous. So we're going to talk about that next. There is one other mushroom in particular that can cause renal failure, and it is an Amanita mushroom. It's Amanita smithiana. Yes, Amanita smithiana. And why don't we have to worry about that so much in Worcester? I believe it is just in the Pacific Northwest. Exactly. It's a curse of the Pacific Northwest, like cloudy days and... Traffic. And traffic. Yeah, because there ain't no traffic in New England. <laughs> and Twilight. And Twilight. <laughs> Forks is not her. She never actually went there, but that's fine. Anyway, so how does... So, I don't know what I'm more scared about, that Peter knew about Twilight or that Matt could correct this. I believe in book and understanding my patients' perspectives and reading their literature. So why... <laughs> do Let's get back to that, though. So causes, causes renal failure. How? Alanic Lucine is, is the primary talk. Alenic norleucine. And it's a little unclear, I think, mechanistically how it does it. But we know that that's the problem, and that's what causes the renal failure. And so what happens with this mushroom? This mushroom is also really annoying because it breaks our mushroom rules, right? Doesn't it? Which yes, one does? It's one of the, yeah. the few mushrooms that actually will start causing toxicity very quickly. Yes. Within 15 to 30 minutes, even, you can start seeing symptoms. Yes. So we'll, we'll get back to that a little bit later, but t- people will get some GI symptoms with this early on, and then when do they get their renal failure? Actually, fairly quickly. It's usually about half the time that you'll see it with the arelanine. And how do we treat this one? Also hemodialysis or a kidney transplant as needed. Yeah, we're not that creative. All right. Uh, and then the other mush- the other call you get about the LBMs, right? The little brown mushrooms? We get a lot of LBMs here. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of them. I'm not even going to name the species, because there's just a ton of LBMs, and they're just like a little brown mushroom. And what do they cause? GI upset. Yeah. If anything, GI upset. Yeah. Nausea, vomiting, shouldn't have eaten a mushroom. And then you say, oh, I feel so reassured, though, because I got the GI upset, which means by eating the LBM, I didn't eat one of the dangerous other toxic mushrooms. Unless you had more than one mushroom in your meal, which is highly likely. Um, But yeah, early onset, GI upset. Supportive care. 
take a Zofran, drink some water. Now people tend to recover from these and do just fine. There is a rare syndrome of Paxillus syndrome, uh, which is seen after repeated ingestion of these mushrooms. And eventually it can, in really rare, rare, rare cases, cause immune-mediated hemolytic anemias and renal failure. The one thing with this is in order to, to have this syndrome, you have to repeatedly eat mushrooms that make you vomit. And so I think there are bigger issues. But yes, so that is a rare um, syndrome that I will describe, Paxilla syndrome. Okay, so now we've talked about another Amanita. Um, we've talked about Amanita muscaria, and now we've talked about Amanita smithiana. So that's the one that causes some early J upset and then some renal failure. And we have talked about everyone's favorite little brown mushroom, abbreviated as LBM. And a huge portion of the calls that we get are LBMs. And now we're going to talk about some more. So I think there's one other. It's the mushroom that's associated with rhabdomyolysis. It's not something that's been described in the United States, but if you go back a few years, there's an article in the New England Journal that describes 12 patients who ingested Tricholoma equestra in France and developed very significant rhabdomyolysis, in some cases lethal. So yes, Tricholoma equestra. I love this mushroom, actually, because it's like... I don't know why, I just like rhabdo. It's equestra, like a horse. Equestra, exactly. Tricholoma equestra. Not to be confused with a horse whisperer. Or yeah. Cortinarius aurelinus, um, who's also a horse. And this one's called the man on horseback. So the Latin name's kind of easy to match up. Yes, you can imagine. I don't know, if you want to remember it, there could be like a horse like mashing on somebody's muscles or causing rhabdo. Or you fell off a horse. And you got stuck in a ditch, you can get wrapped up. There's always got to be a ditch. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And you ate the mushroom that was in the ditch. Okay. <laughs> so wait, anyone want to describe this a little more in terms of symptoms, time time onset? So generally, you know, you start not feeling great, having fatigue, myalgias. This tends to start up within one to three days after ingestion of the mushrooms. Yeah, exactly. So you eat the mushroom, you say, what a delicious mushroom meal. And, and then later on, you get this like little bit of, not flu, but myalgias and stuff. And then you should fear what's going to happen and write your will. And then you start having darker urine because of rhabdo. And maybe you get a little renal failure. But this is not a primarily renal toxic mushroom that causes rhabdo. Really bad rhabdo. Rhabdo in the thousands and thousands and thousands. So it's reading like 50,000, 60,000. Yeah. And there have been deaths associated with it, actually. But luckily, it's only in Europe. Except. Well, I think that the interesting part of that is, is that there's another ingestion in France associated with rhabdo, and specifically it's quail, and particularly it's quail that I believe has eaten conium maculatum, and patients can come in with a similar presentation. So you have to find out if they had quail and mushrooms for dinner because maybe they've got a double threat. Yeah. That's the one thing, though. It's like, you know, it's risky, but they eat so well. I'd, have anyone, has anyone in this emergency department in Worcester said, did you have quail last week? That's part of my Asian pee. Yeah, quail. Yeah, usually it's like I had a cheeseburger before I had a cheeseburger. Okay. Or a quail burger. Quail burger. Quail burger. Uh, or, yeah. Okay, so we've, we've danced through a bunch of different categories. And you'll notice that we're not talking about specific mushroom species because there's a lot of them and they look very similar and there's great reference lists. But these are the chunks or the groups. This is the differential diagnosis or the mushadrome, if you want to describe it. I'm coining that term. I'm copywriting it mushadrome. Or I guess we could call it a mycodrome. Fungodrome? Fungodrome. Fungodrome. 
Actually, that sounds like a great roller skating rink. I was down at the Thunderdome. Anyway, this is your differential diagnosis of mushroom exposure. Although, actually, all of these mushroom poisonings we've been talking about, we have been talking about people that eat mushrooms as a part of a meal because they wish to enjoy the delicious mushroom flavors. But there is another reason for mushroom exposures. What's the other mushroom that, um, that, that people ingest? Or what's the type of mushroom, broad category of mushroom? Layman's? Magic mushrooms. The magic mushrooms, exactly. If you wish to do magic, um, if you wish to have a magic show, you might eat these mushrooms. No. It seem like good magic. Maybe to you it might be magic. <laughs> I bet. Absolutely. So what, why do people eat the magic mushrooms? Usually for the hallucinogenic properties. Right. Yeah, psilocybin containing mushrooms, which has what effects? Sort of serotonergic, mostly. Yeah. So you can get your expected serotonergic effect. You get tachycardia, flushing, you get hallucinations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, organic robotripping. Yes, people can see sounds. Synesthesia. Synesthesia is a confusion of the senses. So there are classic synesthesias that are described, but it's an idea of like tasting sound or hearing colors. But it's it's been classically described with other other hallucinogens, like specifically LSD. And so the psilocybin mushrooms have been used for religious purposes and shamanic rituals. I think that the interesting thing about them is now they're sort of widely available via the internet. So you don't actually have to go out and forage for these. You can just buy them online. You can also buy a grow your own psilocybin kit. So there is, yeah, and we're going to, we'll put links to those websites, you know, so you can order those mushrooms. For um, educational purposes. We have no conflicts of interest. <laughs> we have to fund the fellowship somehow. So those are the psilocybin-containing mushrooms, the psilocybes. Um, some species are... Psilocybe cubensis. Psilocybe and... Gymnophilus. Gymnophilus, okay. Gymnophilus. So just a little, uh, just a little refresher and contrast for those of you that are trying to get some of these mushroom names down, and you just heard us talk about psilocybe, and you think that we already talked about that type. No, so psilocybe are the psilocybin-containing mushrooms, which are the hallucinogenic magic mushrooms, versus the inosibi and clytosibi mushrooms, which are the muscarin-containing mushrooms. So the uh, inosibi and clytosibi contain the muscarin versus psilocybe, which are the psilocybin-containing hallucinogenic mushrooms. And you wonder why we pull our hair out. And those ones, whenever I see them, at least the classic magic mushroom picture that you'll see is um, like the long, stringy ones, kind of. I think the other thing to note would be that the onset is fairly rapid and uh, effects are typically short-lived. So typically within 10 or 12 hours, most of the symptoms have resolved, as opposed to some of our other mushrooms that drag on for days and days. Exactly, yeah. And so it's almost as if they were designed to be, this is why they're popular, because you take it and then immediately you get the hallucinogenic effect and then it goes away, as if you're using like LSD or something like that. Right, and then we've been dancing around it, but whenever anyone says mushroom, whenever anyone calls the Poison Control Center, the reality is, the underlying question they're asking is, is this Amanita phylloides? Is this death? So Amanita, the toxin is the amatoxin. It's a hepatic toxin, so it's um, it's absorbed by the GI tract. And so I think it's the am, it's usually the alpha amatoxin that we really worry about with the amanita phylloides, which is a cyclopeptide, um, and as such, this is considered one of the cyclopeptide-containing mushrooms if we're going to talk about chunking everything together. Exactly. And so this one has the alpha amantin, which affects the RNA polymerase and protein transport. 
and other cyclic peptides include uh, phalloidin, um, which interrupts active glomerization and so also messes with cell function. And then there's neurotoxins, uh, uh, which it's, it's unclear they might be toxic. Um, but you don't see them as much as you see the other cyclopeptides. And so um, so somebody calls and they say, is this Amanita phalloides and, and why are they worried about that? Well, I think the scary thing is that initially you're okay. Um, so after a couple of hours, you're still feeling great. It takes somewhere between like five and six hours up to 24 hours before you really start seeing symptoms from these. And initially it's a little bit of GI upset um, and then you're feeling a little bit better and all of a sudden you realize you're turning a little bit yellow and not feeling so great again. Right, exactly. And that's the thing, so you don't have immediate sickness. So what is this kind of like in terms of toxicology? Tylosinaminophen. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, two of you lose points for using trade names. Um, but yes, it's like acetaminophen um, or paracetamol for the European listeners. But yeah, so silent ingestion and then absolute liver failure. And so what's the treatment for this? So there's a couple different ones. People propose using N-acetylcysteine, similar to acetaminophen toxicity. You can also go out and buy some milk thistle for the psilobionin. Um, people have proposed using penicillin G to treat this. If you come in and are not yet symptomatic, you could consider giving these patients activated charcoal. And then if they're really sick and you're catching them later, you can consider doing hemodialysis or a liver transplant. Yeah, this is something where people will talk about multi-dose activated charcoal, NAC, because it's a vitamin and we're toxicologists, so we're always looking for a reason to use it. The high doses of, like, high, high doses of penicillin G, like 1.6 million units per kilo per day. But the reason why we also love to talk about this is because it's probably the one of the only things that you will give milk thistle for, so you get the um, psilobinin. And we, we joke about this, but the reality is it's it, there have been great case reports of administering this and people with terrible liver toxicity surviving, people that should that should need transplant. And actually to the point that right now there's actually an NIH-funded trial by Todd Mitchell in California who's trying to look at IV-administered psilobinin to see if that has an effect. Because right now the reality is it's not an FDA-approved indication. And so if you are going to give this, and we've actually had to give it here, but if you need to give it, then you sort of have to get special permission from your hospital and from the uh, FDA to give it on like a compassionate care. Compassionate care. Right. They're fixing to die. We should try this. All those treatments. And then if those treatments don't work, transplant. Liver dialysis, Mars. Uh, So a sort of dialysis process where you flush their serum against an albumin containing uh, dialysate to try to remove some of the toxin that's bound to the albumin in the system. Yeah, the other reason to do the MARS is MARS is, um, though it's mainly for big protein-bound molecules, it will also help with some smaller molecules, and so you can also help with ammonia and some of the other just general uh, body toxins that build up during liver failure. And I think there are cases where patients can have a resolution without going on to transplant or death, so not everyone who comes in with evidence of hepatotoxicity is going to progress. But as, as Matt alluded to earlier, I think one of the biggest problems is that we tend to see this frequently among Eastern European and East Asian immigrants to the U.S. where the amanita phylloides looks like an edible mushroom in other countries. And so there's a lot of this mistaken identity, unfortunately, that leads to some pretty serious pathology. Yes, absolutely. And it's also difficult, too, because it's 
it's something where if you have the mushroom, you actually can try and do some bedside testing. Meixner's test? Is that how you say it? Yeah, the Meixner's test. What is that? So you place, I believe, hydrochloric acid, a uh, drop of hydrochloric acid onto the mushroom while it's on a sheet of newspaper. And if you get a bluish uh, coloration, then that suggests there is uh, amatoxin. Yeah. And that's something that, while it's in books and it's talked about, and you can do it, it's cool. It can be hard to interpret. There are false positives for it. So the reality is, if somebody comes in acutely and, and you think that there's been an Amanita exposure, then you have to be very conservative and you kind of have to admit them and start treating them if you've got good reason for an exposure. If they, cut, if they eat a mushroom in theory and they get sick immediately, then just one mushroom, then that's typically... Um, not Amanita, and so they should be okay from a liver perspective. And if somebody comes in late, it's a little bit easier in some respects because then they've already had the liver failure and the diagnosis can be made. I mean, you would still do all those therapies. So I think we, we sort of covered all these different groups of mushrooms. All right, so you have done a great job. You have stayed with this throughout 10 groups of mushrooms. So just a quick quick reminder, we've talked about the Amanita muscaria, which are not actually muscarinic. We've also talked about the muscarinic Clytosabi and Inosabi. We've talked about the Gyromitra or the false morels. We've talked about the Coprinus, which with their disulfiram reaction are not co-wine, the Coprine. We've talked about the uh, magic or psilocybe mushrooms. We've talked about the little brown mushrooms that make you go puke. We have talked about the quaternarius mushrooms, which have the orelanine in them and cause the renal failure. We've also talked about the Amanita smithiana mushrooms, which cause renal failure along with some GI upset. And we've also talked about the rhabdo-inducing tricoloma equestre mushrooms. So fantastic job. 10 groups of mushrooms. If you got those 10 groups down, you are set for life. But the real question is, what do we do when someone's eaten a mushroom? And and that's what we're going to talk about next. So, you know, take a second break if you want, have some mushroom ice cream, chocolate mushrooms, and, uh, and then come on back and we'll talk about what to do when you see someone who has eaten a mushroom. So, so if you get a mushroom call, how do you approach it? I think the first thing I try to figure out is the time course whether this is a patient that had just eaten this mushroom or whether they were coming in because they were now having symptoms from something they'd eaten a few days ago or a few hours ago. I think the dose is important as well, and that really speaks to intent. So sometimes when you have a toddler who um, has taken a single bite out of a, a little brown mushroom, you can be reassured as opposed to somebody who is foraging and had an entire mushroom meal. Right. And that's, yeah, so that's the other thing. And this is basic toxicology, you know, when was the exposure? What was the amount of the exposure? Also, can I trust you? Was it an intentional exposure or the nature of the circumstances surrounding it? And definitely, as with lots of exposures with children, because they tend to have smaller amounts of one item, unless it's something that's extremely lethal in small amounts and or tastes good or was fed to them, it's less likely to be something really dangerous. So yeah, so timing, exposure, and then like, what else? What do you do? We usually try to ask them about the mushroom, although, unfortunately, it's usually not very reliable. If they have a sample available or a picture um, or a description of the mushroom itself. And I think that we look at a lot of other objective evidence, and specifically in these cases, depending on when they present, that initial set of LFTs is going to be 
pretty useful in guiding their therapy. If their liver function tests are abnormal at the time of presentation, they're going to need to stay in the hospital for some further evaluation. Right. Absolutely. If they get sick early on, you might be reassured it doesn't rule out co-ingestion with other dangerous mushrooms. Certainly, if it's a delayed exposure and they're fine, you can feel decent. You can be like, oh, okay, this happened seven days ago and you're fine. And then, yeah, and just like anything else, physical exam, vital signs, basic lab tests, LFTs, and then try to figure out which mushroom this might be exposed to. Being aware that the vast, vast majority of mushroom ingestions are actually not not clinically significant in terms of a poisonous fashion. So even though we tend to focus on the minority of mushroom ingestions that are very dangerous and bad, if somebody comes to you an hour after eating a mushroom, if you were just a betting person, odds are they're probably going to be okay. And I should mention, in addition to checking their LFTs, in a lot of these cases we're going to be looking at their creatinine as well, knowing that that may go up later. And really, oftentimes, I think, sadly, it's an odds game. And, you know, I say if you have a high clinical suspicion for Amanita phylloides, you know, you would admit them and you would institute treatment. Notice I don't define what a high clinical suspicion is, but that might be somebody who has a good accurate description or has an identical mushroom, and that mushroom can be identified by a mycologist as an Amanita species in an area where Amanita are known to grow. That can be important. And even, I should also say that I pretty much stick to grocery store mushrooms because that's what I feel are safe, but every so often there have been isolated case reports of wild mushrooms at natural health food stores that are uh, sometimes toxic. So not to scare you, just be aware. So what we have been talking about throughout this case is ingestion of mushrooms. But oddly enough, mushrooms are a very diverse group, and there is one other route of toxicity uh, that we have to that we haven't addressed that we're just gonna just gonna throw out there too, just so that you can go beyond mushroom ingestions. One of the cutest named mushrooms that can have adverse clinical effects. So another mode of mushroom toxicity is inhalational. So there are these puffball mushrooms, like a paradon, who, which look amazingly like huge puffballs. But what happens is when you pick them, the spores get aerosolized and you inhale them. And that's a really scary thing to think about because you could be inhaling tiny little mushroom babies. Um, <laughs> and the problem is you can get a pretty impressive pneumonitis from them and to the point where sometimes these patients need to get intubated. And the treatment for those depending on how bad they get, you may need amphotericin. And I think what's interesting about this is that the, the complementary and alternative medicine used for lycoperidon is actually for epistaxis. So it's been used historically to stop nosebleeds, which sort of points to the fact that this may be dose-related or idiopathic because it's been used for centuries as something that you use in an inhalational fashion but didn't make everybody sick. Yes, mushroom... So mushroom babies. I, I think I think if I'm going to bring any one phrase away from this, it's going to be mushroom babies. <laughs> and the reason why we often don't talk about these is because they, they're irritating and they can cause... Luminitis. Right. But any, anything you inhale can. But, um, but usually it's not babies. Yeah, so puffball mushrooms, beware of inhaling them. Yeah, I know. Imagine you could have a whole colony of mushrooms growing in your lungs. Well, I want to thank you all for joining me today. Listeners, so this was an incredibly superficial, fast-paced review of just how we think about mushrooms. Feel free to write in and criticize us. 
but these are just the general broad tox categories that we have for mushrooms and how we approach them. There's a lot more detailed information available out there. We'll put up some pictures of the mushrooms also to accompany some of the discussion that we've had, and um, there's also just some great, great articles and writing out there. I want to thank the UMass Tox team for uh, contributing to this. Well, thanks for having us, Matt. Thanks for having us. Thanks. And look on the website for awesome pictures of the mushrooms that we were talking about today. Absolutely. And the mushroom hat. And the mushroom hat. But I was kidding about putting up links to the magic mushrooms. You can find those yourself. Um, that's it for another episode of Talks Talk. Please forgive me for the length of this episode, but we wanted to try and get everything in. In fact, there was so much in this episode that we're actually going to be talking about some mushroom issues on our next episode. We're going to be interviewing Ian Garber, who saw an interesting mushroom poisoning and then came up with a novel testing method. I want to give a shout out on this episode to Howard Greller, who really gave an excellent talk on mushroom poisoning at the ACMT board review course. And of course, a lot of this is based on some really excellent mushroom chapters that can be found in most medical toxicology texts. You can send us feedback by emailing us at toxtalk at toxtalk.org, that's T-O-X-T-A-L-K, or via our Twitter or Facebook feed at toxtalk. And uh, I guess the best way to end this episode with everyone's favorite phrase is um, that there are old mycologists and there are bold mycologists, but there are no old, bold mycologists. Talks Talk is a podcast made possible by support from the University of Massachusetts Division of Toxicology and Department of Emergency Medicine. I'm Matt Zuckerman, signing off.